KFW, Washington. Your children are not your children. They are the sons and the daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you, but they are not from you. And though they are with you, they belong not to you. Good evening, and welcome to another edition of On Parenting. Good evening, and welcome to WPFW 89.3 Pacifica Radio here in our nation's capital. And this is Jack Petrash, your host for On Parenting, and this is our August show. Health is a great concern for parents. From the moment our children are born, that is the focus of our attention. And so health care is a paramount concern in the minds of moms and dads. And healthcare reform certainly has to be on our minds this week with all the news of our president making his noble effort to gain support for his healthcare reform measures uh, out in the Western states. And as we look at this issue of healthcare reform, you can see that rising health costs are affecting our economy. And in the Washington Post today, it said that by the year 2050, just 40 years from now, Healthcare costs will consume 40% of our national economy. And so the question I want to ask tonight, is there a connection with these rising healthcare costs with the way in which we care for the health of our children? And to explore that question with us tonight, we have a very special guest, Dr. Ron Schneebaum, pediatrician for 25 years experience, uh, practices in New England. He has... um, worked with the medical school at Boston University, at Harvard University, and at the Dartmouth Hitchcock Center of Medicine. He's a fellow of the Academy, American Academy of Pediatrics, a person who is so well-suited to be here on our show and to discuss this issue. Welcome, Dr. Schneebaum. Hey, well, thank you very much. It's good to have you on. So let's get right to the heart of it. What's your feelings about health care reform, Ron? Interesting. It's a huge question. I, I had an interesting conversation the other day with a fellow who runs a local deli. And this is a fellow who um, uh, is very worried about government incursion into, uh, into health care. And whether that's right or wrong, he was really fairly adamant and, and had some positions and worried about it. At the same time, this guy is a deeply religious guy who's very involved in his church. And um, I posed a question, and the purpose of my saying this is, I think, to really solve problems, we need to think out of the box. Um, And so I said to this fellow who's deeply religious and was concerned, I said, suppose, and, and, um, and, you know, and worried worried about changing uh, what we currently have. I said, listen, suppose you were doing missionary work, and you were going to Africa, and there was uh, an illness that was caused by um, some kind of parasite, would your approach be when you landed, okay, first I want to see all the people who have a good job and have good insurance. It probably wouldn't be the missionary's approach. And I thought, you know, suppose it was that God was going to develop a health care plan. What would his health care plan be like? And so it, the reason I say this story is it just caused him to pause and think. And I think in a lot of ways you really have to think out of the box. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. 
Now, you've worked for 25 years in New England practice. You've had your own practice and, and have seen parents bring their children to you. Um, what's your sense of the urgency with which parents come? Is it legitimate? Do they come to you to treat their children when it's necessary? Well, you know, we had a little bit of this conversation before the show, and one of the things that strikes me in pediatrics, and my wife uh, is also a physician, and one of the things that, we, that, that people in medicine know is that we have a really uneducated populace in terms of health. And what I mean by that is there are people who um, uh, we aren't schooled in how to recognize what's important and what's not important when it comes to medicine. So that there are people that have serious medical problems that don't get medical attention, uh, but also there are people that have medical issues that don't need um, a doctor's care. And we don't teach people about that. You know, what we're talking about is we aren't trained as, as parents, um, as, as a society, and how do you separate out what's serious from what's not? Yeah. So now that's so that a, that's during a, the course of a day, the percentage of people that I see that really need me is incredibly low, and that's across the board. Uh-huh. So when parents come into your office to bring their children, um, what are the things they come for that, that they really don't need to see you? Well, you know, it, it's, it's, it goes, that's a great question. And, and what it comes to, in order to really answer that well, uh, there needs to be a little sense of what is it that we can do in medicine mm-hmm. and what is it that we can't do. Um, so that it's reasonable for a parent to be able to say at some point, my child has an illness, is this something serious or not? Uh-huh. And that's essentially what they're saying. They're saying, is it serious and what do we do about it? Okay. But way before that, we're not taught about whether an illness is serious or not. Um, you know, if you think about it, how come we don't have any kind of training in learning? How do you separate out a serious illness from one that's not? So let's say just for some simple practical example, suppose you have a headache. Okay. So you don't go to the doctor all the time if you have a headache. But there might be some headaches where you go to the doctor. What's the difference? What's going on there? And, um, you know, and, and, in order, and, and if we were interested in really solving that problem, wouldn't we educate people somehow in sorting out what's important from what's not? So I'll see, uh, you know, it depends on the season. Um, this, is the, this is the insect bite and injury time of the year. Uh-huh. Um, so I'll see slews of kids that have insect bites, and basically I look at them and say, yep, it's a bug bite. You know, and there really isn't anything I have to offer them. And sometimes there can be a bug bite with swelling. And I'll talk to them about the difference between you can get a bug bite with what we call localized swelling, where you have a little bit of soreness and swelling where you got the bite. That's different from an allergy, where you have a reaction from the bite that affects where the bite was, and it also affects you in other places in your body. So you get swollen in your arm, you break out in a rash all over your body, you have difficulty breathing. That's different. The bug bite with a local reaction is really, that's just, how some people react to bug bites, it doesn't mean anything. And that kind of information isn't ever taught anywhere. And it's like a simple thing. So, you know, so the part when we talked about health care reform, part that would be interesting, if we had some education, then there would be not because of anybody telling people they shouldn't go to the doctor, but there'd be a huge decrease in the amount people go to doctors. 
Now, and basically what it comes down to is some level of common sense. So, Ron, you said that a large percentage of people who come into your practice in the summer, they're coming for bug bites and sports injuries. In the winter, they're coming for earaches and colds and fevers. But a large percentage, how large a percentage? What would your guess um, be? I would, I would guess that probably about 75% of the people I see in a day don't need me. Okay, so now I'm just curious because I love numbers. How much does it cost in New England to take a child to the doctor? You know, it's funny. You ask that question. It's funny. I'm not positive, but it's probably it's probably somewhere around seventy-five to hundred dollars. If somebody goes to an emergency room, you're talking about several hundred dollars. So let's say seventy-five dollars. And how many people do you see in a day in a practice? Uh, let's say about twenty to twenty-five. So twenty twenty to twenty-five people. So imagine that there are about fifteen that I don't need to see. Yeah. So I'm just going to multiply this by about eighty percent, and. And just try to get a sense here of the of the numbers of dollars that aren't necessary to spend. Now, when you add that to people that use emergency rooms yeah. as their primary care doctor because they don't have a regular doctor and so on, when you go to the emergency room, that same cost is several hundred dollars. Yeah. The yeah. other one that happens that's an amazing one, and this isn't the fault of the public, but it turns out it's physicians. There are varying degrees of ability and skill. And there's some physicians that will do more tests than others, or emergency rooms will do more tests than others. So once you start getting to the world of getting tests done also, then the numbers are huge. Yeah, then it goes up. We're speaking tonight with Dr. Ron Schneebaum here on, on Parenting. And I want to invite you to call in with your questions at 202-588-0893. And any questions you have about health care and the health of young children and the, the costs of taking care of young children. Now, Ron, I... I'm going to discipline myself and not ask you about sports injuries yet, um, just because that's a childhood memory of mine that just jumps to the fore. But I want to go to these these winter questions, you know, because that's when the majority of parents are are looking at their children with more concern over health than I would imagine they do in the summer. And so let's look at something like the common earache. What is it that parents should know about treating a child with an earache? Sure. So, uh, you know, one of the things, uh, one of the things before we do earaches, especially, but if you're talking about winter, you know, one of the things that we worry about in medicine when we give advice to people is we don't want to miss. I mean, we probably, yeah. as physicians, will be more cautious because if, suppose, suppose there's somebody answering telephones to decide who should come into an office. Yeah. You'd rather be more cautious and That's right. see more people than to turn somebody away who's got a serious illness. But separate from that, um, you know, the part, again, when it goes to education, is our not appreciating what it is that we can do in medicine and what we can't do in medicine, even in the year 2009. So that one of the things we can't do is we can't make a cold better. You know, we can't make a cold better. You've got, you got a cold, you got a cold. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what we want to watch out for is who's got something that's more than a cold or who's got, who's got symptoms that are more significant, who's got an illness that's more significant. So, you know, that really should be the question on people's minds. What I'll tell parents, because I, I consider, you know, while I might see a lot of people who don't need me, my job is to not in any way um, uh, look askance at them, but to really to educate. Because what I'd love people to do is learn to develop a sense of, of common sense, a sense of comfort, a sense of, you know, of, of, of what's appropriate. A sense of comfort with their own judgment, you mean? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So a few simple basic skills. 
So one of the things I'll say to parents, because, you know, in some way children are children, and this is, let's say, talking about the child who's, oh, let's say nine months or above, just because the more interactive somebody is, the more you have to go by as to whether or not they have something serious. Okay. So I'll say to folks, I say, listen, imagine that you have a cold, okay? And then imagine that you are now this child's age. Does this child look to you like somebody who's got a cold? And if you think, yeah, it looks like he has a cold, well, then there's nothing, then you don't need to go to the doctor. <laughs> if it turns out that you think, no, this is worse, then, then it's reasonable for the child to be seen. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the questions parents always have when they, when they look at their child, I mean, the one, one of the things parents always do is they, they touch their child's forehead. They want to know if their child has a fever. What would you want parents to know about their child's with their well, children if, when there's a fever. You know, if all pediatricians, if all doctors could get the word to people that fever is not bad, it'd be amazing. I would change like the face of medicine. Um, but fever isn't bad. When, they do, when, when, when research is done, when studies are done looking at fever, fevers less than 103 and a half probably boost the child's immune system, boost anybody's immune system. So, uh, so you're saying that a fever under 103.5 degrees makes a child healthier in the long run? Well, you can't necessarily say that. That's what some research seems to say. Uh -huh. But the point that I want to make is that fever itself isn't bad. Uh -huh. So a couple of things with that, just as like a little pointer, is if it turns out when you have fever and you're sick, you feel miserable. So sometimes it's hard to sort out when I was saying before, does this seem like something that's out of the ordinary? If it turns out that you give somebody something to reduce their fever and they feel better, then what's making them feel worse is the fever. If giving you a pain relief makes it better, yeah. then the underlying problem isn't serious. Mm -hmm. Isn't serious. That's right. Yep. So a good way to tell is if you give that Tylenol and the child feels better, then you know that it's a fever they're dealing with and under 103.5. It's not and a serious probably thing. Probably that 103.5 is extreme. So yep. if you were to say 100, 101, certainly in the 101 realm, you're not talking about anything serious. So when parents come to you, what do you usually see with a fever? Um, childhood illnesses commonly come with fever. Yeah, but you know, what range? I mean, are you seeing children with 103.5 or are you seeing children in your office at 101, 101? The, the, the lower, you know, the lower ones are more common. Yeah, okay. You know, it's certainly when somebody has a high fever, it makes us think more. Um, uh, you know, what I'll, one of the, uh, an interesting, and so that, you know, you need to, you need to use your powers of observation and really think about it and see what's going on and think about the other possible things that could be happening. So, you know, if somebody has a substantially high fever, it's certainly worth it for them to contact their doctor. Yeah. Um, but, but, fever, but, but I think the real point I was saying is that fever itself isn't anything bad. So I'll not uncommonly see somebody because they had fever. Yeah. No, and, I, I think your yeah. point, your point is, is really well taken. And, and I know it's, it's, a, it's a delicate line to walk because, on the one hand, you're responsible for the well-being of children, and that's your primary care and, and concern, and, and a parent's as well. And so you want to make sure you take that extra step and err on the side of caution. That's right. And I think the part that's also missing where we don't educate folks is what really we have to offer in medicine. Mm -hmm. um, because it's not that much. Yeah. Um, and, and one of the things that happens, it's not that much, and um, people are taught somewhere that they need to do something. And that's driven a multi-billion dollar cough and cold industry, yeah. which isn't necessarily helping children. So when a parent 
is concerned about their child's health, the thing that they do is they walk to the pharmacy. They drive to the pharmacy, they park, they walk in, and they get lost in this aisle that offers them just far too many choices. What well, one of the things that's one of the things that's interesting, and and you know, here I'm just presenting one side of things, and I think it's worth it to do that just because people don't necessarily think this way, so it's just worth it to hear another side. But um, uh, um, we have this American approach to life that if you have an illness, you have to do something about it. So just imagine for a second, and and this is just you know thinking a little bit out of the box. Um, but here it is, suppose when somebody has fever, suppose a child has fever and they really feel like lying in bed and they don't feel well. Now couple that with this side of the coin the, or the science that says there probably is some value in the fever. So now what we do is we give them fever reducers because we can't stand them having fevers as parents and, and so on. So we give them with fever reducers and the fever goes away, they feel better and they're jumping and playing. Mm-hmm. Which is really better. Like, which, is it better for them to lay low, work through the illness? Yeah, recover gradually. Yeah. Or not. Yeah. Now, one of the things they're starting to discover is that the medicines that we give kids aren't innocuous. Um, and, uh, you know, we give huge doses over a period of time. Nobody's ever really looked at long-term studies. We don't know what happens when these kids are going to be 70 and 80 years old. I'm not saying anything bad will happen, but it's just interesting to know these are medicines. Yeah. We're talking with Dr. Ron Schneebaum here on On Parenting, and we invite you to call in with your questions at 202-588-0893. And um, so, Ron, let's take that walk down the the uh, pharmaceutical aisle, and what sort of things are there for, for parents, and, and what are the choices, and how do we make them intelligently? Well, what's interesting is there are basically three or, let's say, four kinds of medicines in the cough and cold world. There are fever reducers, and the fever reducers are in the acetaminophen, that's the Tylenol family, or what are called non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, ibuprofen, Advil, Motrin. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yeah. Um, then there are cough suppressants, and we'll talk a little bit about that. And then there are what are called um, uh, decongestants and antihistamines. Okay? And, and, ver- and combinations of those make up all the cough and cold medicines. So one of the things that happens, just as in a by the by, um, uh, one uh, the side effects of a lot of a lot of people have side effects from medicine. That's why I think it's worth it. You know, the less you take in certain times, unless you need it, the better off it is. No study has ever shown that taking cough and cold medicines in any way affects the course of the illness. It doesn't make you better. It doesn't shorten the course of the illness. It doesn't make you better. There are hints that it might even cause more in the way of your infections. Um, but the thought, you know, you'd love to say, wow. If you take a decongestant, your whole head will clear up. Well, it turns out it really doesn't happen. Um, so, you know, what I think is nobody should believe me, but it's really take the test. Mm-hmm. You know, do the before and after. Does the medicine really make you feel better? If it does, I don't mean to be a lunatic. If it really makes you feel better, that's probably not bad to do. I mean, you mm-hmm. don't get sick that often. So, you know, so if there's a medicine that really takes, makes you feel better, you know, enjoy it. Go ahead. Um, but at any rate, there are four basic kinds. There are three kinds of medicines. So antihistamines are medicines that really are for allergies. Um, they play no place in a cold. Um, and so that one day, and they've considered it, but one day I'm sure the FDA is going to ban them from cough and cold medicines because they really play no role. Now, the side effects to antihistamines is they make you tired. So just today, because I knew we were going to have this conversation, mm-hmm. I took a look at what is in Tylenol PM. You know, and this is something where people think, wow, I'm sick and I want to be able to sleep well, so I'll take Tylenol PM. 
Well, basically what it is, it's a fever-reducer painkiller, that's acetaminophen, and they add to it the antihistamine Benadryl. And one of the side effects of Benadryl is it makes you sleepy. You know, it's not any kind of magic medicine. <laughs> well, we're talking to Dr. Ron Schneebaum here on, on Parenting, and we're just looking at what can parents do to care for their children and how does our move going to the pediatrician for illnesses that doctors really can't help our children get over any more quickly um, affect the rising cost of health care? Um, so now, Ron, let's look a little bit. You mentioned antihistamines. I'm going to just take it aside for a second sure. and talk about how this stuff affects the cost of health care. Mm-hmm. I was talking a while back with a fellow who was an infectious disease specialist. And he was a bit of an older guy, and he was nationally known as an infectious disease specialist. And I was at a conference, and I asked him, why do we have so many ear infections nowadays? I mean, so many kids have ear infections. And he said there are two reasons. One is daycare. I mean, you know, just kids have more exposure than they used to when they were at home and weren't exposed to as many kids who were sick. Mm-hmm. He said the other one is when he was a kid, if he or his siblings had an earache, his mother would say, oh, okay, you know, put a washcloth on their ear. And then in a couple of days, if they still complained they had an earache, then they would take them to the doctor. Well, it turned out in that period of time, a tremendous number of them got better by themselves. So much so that in recent years, the American Academy of Pediatrics has changed its position, and there are a lot of ear infections where we think the better approach is a wait-and-see approach instead of putting them on antibiotics. So what happened in the intervening time between the time of his mom and the time until just a couple of years ago when the American Academy of Pediatrics changed its approach, and very few people follow this new recommendation by the American Academy of Pediatrics, uh, what happened in that period of time is people would go to the doctor the moment their child has fever and is banging on their ear or complaining or anything like that. So then they go to the doctor and the doctor sees a flaming red ear and what can the doctor do but put the child on antibiotics. And what does that teach next time and next time and next time? is you should go to the doctor as soon as your child has a little bit of an earache. Yeah, and that's and what we so see. I see a lot of people that are like that. And in Europe, um, over the years, ear infections were treated completely differently. They weren't treated with antibiotics, and certainly not in the beginning. So, so our seeing something and worrying right away and not having any knowledge about what do we need to worry about and what shouldn't we worry about hugely raises the cost of medicine, both in terms of doctor visits, medications, follow-ups, side effects of medications, and so on. So now, these parents who are bringing their children to your practice, and I'm imagining that these are parents primarily who have health insurance, and of the $75 that they're being charged to bring their child to your office 80% of the time for illnesses that the child could recover from at home, um, how much of that is covered by health care of, of that? Well, it depends on, on you know, people and their health insurance. Yeah. So um, uh, by and large, out of people that I see, they either have um, health insurance that they pay for through work or they have health insurance that's government paid for, either through something called Healthy Kids or through Medicaid. Um, so it generally gets paid. It's the very rare family that pays for the visit. Mm-hmm. If it happened that they got paid for the visit, I think people would start throwing rocks at us because they'd say, wow, for $75 you're telling me not to do anything and it's nothing? Yeah, I'm so you glad you said that because that, that was the question I didn't ask. You know, the, the, our, you know if people had to, to open their wallets and pay the $75, would they come as quickly 
And well, it's you know, a, you know and it's a hidden cost. Yeah. The funny one is you don't want to put people in a position where they choose to go or not to go based on money. That's right. So to say it a little bit differently, if I'm on call at night and I'm answering phone calls, and suppose somebody calls me at 3 o'clock in the morning about a question that really is um, uh, really is ridiculous. They really could have waited till the morning. They really didn't need to call me and wake me up at 3 in the morning to ask this question. Um, it's always been my policy to never in any way give them that impression. I don't ever want to make them feel funny about having called because I don't want them to ever be in a situation where they where they're worried about something serious. And they don't call Because yeah. they got yelled at, they yep. won't call. Yep. So you don't want to make it that money is the thing that's going to stop people from coming in. You know, what I'm suggesting with the stuff that I was talking about, Jack, mm-hmm. is that as a... It, it's, see, right now, if people heard what I said, they think, okay, we should have people screening phone calls and deciding who should come in or not. That's not necessarily going to leave people and make people happy. People try that, but the real deal is... We really need to educate our populace. Empower parents, that's right. Now, why isn't it that we learn about how to recognize a serious illness from a non-serious illness? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when do you worry about strep throat? When do you worry about a cough? You know, when do you worry about a rash? And on and on. Um, we don't have that anywhere. And why not? Yeah. N- now, people turn to WebMD. Is that helpful for, for parents? Um, well, you know, it goes several ways. It can be very helpful. Um, I haven't looked at Web, WebMD that much. The problem that happens is once you put something about a specific illness out there, the person that writes it has to worry about every possible ramification and possibility yeah. that could happen from the person reading it. So they have to be extremely cautious and, and careful that they're not giving information that's going to lead to a bad outcome. So what I'm suggesting is the real step before that. How come in high school, or, or not about an illness, how come we don't learn about the health and disease of our bodies? Yeah, yeah what a good question. What a, what a yeah. good question. We're speaking with Dr. Ron Schneebaum, pediatrician with 25 years' experience from New England, and we are looking at health care and health care costs and what parents can do to take care of their children at home um, when the illness that they have really cannot be um, cured by a doctor's visit. Now, um, Ron, we're going to be taking a break in a minute. And when we come back, um, I want to turn to you and talk a little bit about the, uh, the emergency room. And because I know that that's where health care costs just skyrocket. And um, so I'm going to... Just thank you and ask you to stay on the line, and we're going to have a public service announcement, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation. Excellent. Thank you. Hi. I'm Abiyul Doom of The Last Poets. Please join me on August 28th for the 5th Annual D.C. Poetry Festival. This year, it will be held at the Carter Baron Amphitheater, located at 16th Street and Colorado Avenue, Northwest. 7.30 p.m. is the time. It is a free community event. That's on August 28th, 7.30 p.m. at Carter Baron Amphitheater. Come on out and enjoy poetry at its best. 
WPFW is proud to be the media sponsor for the 5th Annual D.C. Poetry Festival at the Carter Baron on Friday, August 28th from 7.30 until 10 p.m. WPFW 89.3 FM, your station for jazz and justice, serving the collective needs and imagination of the community. Well, welcome back to On Parenting. This is your host, Jack Petrash, and we're speaking uh, in this first part of our show with Dr. Ron Schneebaum, pediatrician from New England, and we're talking about health care, the health of our children, and health care costs. Now, Ron, here, here, here's what I remember. I remember playing all day on the weekend, Saturday and Sunday, and at the end of a long day of playing, I would make my way home, and when I got home, I would find all these aches and pains and bruises, and sometimes I'd look at the bruises and they just look worse. And the more I looked at them, the worse they got. And I'd go and I'd tell my mother, my poor mother, about my injuries. And that evening we would invariably end up in the emergency room because I thought I had a broken leg or a broken ankle or a broken elbow. And I think in almost every case that wasn't so. Um, What's the deal with sports injuries? Well, um, two things. One is you, you whet my appetite for the emergency room thing, so we have to talk about that one. Mm-hmm. But, um, uh, you know, so let me, let me tie those in, and then we'll talk a little bit about the sports injury part. Um, in the best of all worlds, an emergency room should be just that. It should be an emergency room. And so it should be the place where somebody goes when they think that they potentially have an illness that can't wait, that can't be seen at the doctor's office, uh, that can't um, wait for the next morning because it's an emergency. Okay, mm-hmm. so that's what doctors get trained for. So how do you, you know, so it's the sorting out, um, you know, is, is somebody's chest pain a heart attack? Okay, so now because of that, physicians in emergency rooms are trained to think the worst. They have to be able to remember to think the worst and to also know they might never see these patients again. And they don't know what's going to happen to these people once they leave their office once they leave their emergency room, which is very different than the person who comes to me, because if a person comes to me and they have a problem, I can say to them, listen, this is a plan. I expect this is what's going to happen. If things don't go this way, call me. You know, let me see you again tomorrow. Call me tonight. I'll give you a call tonight you know, if things don't go this way. The emergency room doesn't have the luxury to do that because they don't know the people. Mm-hmm. But because of that, in emergency rooms, they do a lot more testing. So, and so the expectation is you do a lot more testing. So first, the cost of the visit is huge. And then you build in the cost of the testing. So um, if somebody comes to my office for an ankle sprain, I can pretty well do a pretty good determination as to whether or not I think this is a fracture and whether or not I think it's worth it to get an X-ray. You don't necessarily have that luxury in an emergency room because you don't want to find out later that you missed it because you might have to, you know, they, might, they might go off to the woods and go you know, hiking or who knows what. So because of that, there will be a lot more testing, which, which that in itself is usually expensive. Um, Yes. As far as to answer your question a little bit differently, when I talk to teenagers or, or kids who are athletes, uh, what I'll generally say to them, and, and this, help, this might help a little bit in what you were talking about, what I'll say to them when they have an injury and they need to go back to play this sport, uh, I try to educate. And I say, so listen, when you have an injury that hurts while you're playing your sport, you know, you have your ankle that hurts, and while you're playing, it hurts worse. That's your body saying don't play. That's an important one that's one where you should get it examined because there might be something loose, something unstable, something broken. There could be something serious there. On the other hand, what happens, there are a huge number of injuries 
that are more tendon and what we call soft tissue related. And for those, they don't hurt while you're playing your sport. Um, they hurt after you play, when you're resting they play, when things have cooled down. Those injuries generally aren't very significant. There, what I'll tell athletes is that there you have to decide how much it hurts afterward and is it worth it. Now, Ron, we've got a caller and we're going to go to the phone here. And um, Patrick, are you there? Yeah, I'm still here. All right. Thank you. Thank you for waiting. And your question. Okay. My, my question really is um, I wanted to, you know, put my two senses into the debate that is going on with, um, you know, the health care yes. uh, reform. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, as, uh, the, my main issue is the way it's being, you know, presented. You know, and uh, I don't really understand why, um, you know, hopefully Obama doesn't really pose it as a question. You know, and my comment here is that uh, we need to there is lack of priority as to what is more important. You know, do we need to, and I'm, I'm making reference to, like, if we say security, which, you know, again, is run by the government, mm-hmm. um, and we talk about um, education, we have public and uh, private education system, yes. uh, uh, and the healthcare, you know, just seems to be completely on a different path. You know, and my question here is, if we ask the question between security, education, and health care, which one is more important That's right. to the citizens of this nation? That's right. I am sure that health care will be the first one, because I don't think uh, anything can come, you know, before, uh, before health care. Yeah. You know, the other so, one I think that's, of the, that's where I'm really, you know, I really want to see that debate go, as opposed to who is making profit. That's yeah. right. Yeah, there, there's so much to it. You know, one of the things you remind me of is I often picture a person who's a millionaire who's the head of a major corporation um, at the x-ray department alongside the fellow who just lost his job, you know, as a house cleaner, um, who both have the same illness and they're wearing hospital gowns. They feel like they're brothers there. You know, as far as their bodies, their bodies are the same, their illness is the same, their pain is the same. And we obviously can't treat them differently when it comes to health care. Yep. And we've lost that sense of, of common concern. Well, we've been talking with Ron Schneebaum. Ron, now, I, I want to thank you, Patrick, for your call. And uh, I want to turn back, Ron, to your um, conversation that we were having about the emergency room. And you were saying that if a, if a young person is playing and it hurts while you're playing, that's a sign that you and should stop. And listen to your body. Yep. And, and what happens, professional athletes don't do that. They take injections to get through the pain, and what they don't say is that later in their lives they can't move. Yeah. They can't walk, they can't throw, they can't use their arms. That's right. So you don't want to play through pain. And I just wish that someone had said to my mother what, what you're saying now, because if she had said to me, well, did you finish the game? I would have said, well, yes. Yeah. And then she should have known that she wouldn't have had to, to sit there for and also, three or four hours. And better by the time you play the next game. Listen, let me just say one of the things with you as an educator, one other plea that will go to deaf ears but I think is important. Everybody's worried about obesity in kids. Yes. Now, so here it is. We're worried about obesity, and what we do in our school systems is we have kids sit behind a desk all day long. And after sitting behind the desk all day long, um, they get homework. So they sit behind the desk all evening long. And then it's dark, and they want to take a little break, so they watch TV or play with their computers and so on, they go to bed, and we wonder why kids are obese. And your suggestion to parents, what would it be? Well, it's more to the teachers. We and to, to schools, really that's teachers. good. Yeah. We really have to look at this issue of homework. Yeah, yeah. 
um, uh, when I, I used to be a school teacher, and I was so impressed with how quickly you get caught up in giving busy work. Yeah. And now if we're talking about kids' health versus doing something that really doesn't make a difference. Um, you know, I think as educators, we really need to look at how do we free up kids so they can get outside yeah. and play. Yeah. Well, Ron, I want to thank you so much for being our guest tonight and for speaking with us about this issue. And surely um, we've just scratched the surface. There are just so many things. But I have to say that in hearing what you say, I'm struck by by how how much more we could do as parents to to care for our children in sound, healthy ways before we rush to the doctor and drive up those medical costs. And uh, and as you say, I'm just going to keep remembering that 80% on a, a rough estimate, but 80% of the people who come through your door um, could take care of their children at home with, with good success. And I think it's, um, it's a noble thing of you to point that out and to underscore the need for parent education so we can empower parents with these medical questions. Yeah. And it's really, it's a lot of common sense. If there are any questions, I'd be happy to uh, answer anybody's questions if they forward questions to you. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Ron. And thanks for being our guest. Hey, it's my pleasure. All right. You'd be Take well. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Well, at this time in our show, we are going to turn and we have a second guest on tonight. Our, our guest now is going to be Howard Edelstein, and Howard's the author of a book called Scooter Strays, and it's published by the Orchard House Press, and it's a book that he has done. It's grown out of his work with the Washington Humane Society, and I want to welcome you, Howard, Thank to you. our show. Thank uh, you. It's so great to be here. And it's good to have you here, and uh, Howard, I was just wondering, um, your book, which is designed to instill in, in children uh, the need to be re- responsible caretakers for their pets. Um, how did you come to write this book? Well, it actually started out as part of the Washington Humane Society's kids page. Um, I was developing that several years ago, and I just wrote an interactive story where you can go and select different options at the end of each web page, and it would take you to a different part of the story. And, you know, it just different ways to emphasize you know how you know a dog really depends on you and on their own they don't do very well so there's all these different predicaments that scooter gets into and you got to try and help them out and get them back home safely and then i had a nice story and uh, a good friend of mine um, amanda mokul she's a great artist she did all these really nice pictures so i thought well we've got the story we got the pictures let's put it together as a book uh-huh. Now it's a lovely book, and you, Thank you. and uh, and it's an intriguing um, website, and that children can go to and and really follow the same story as the book. And one of the things I noticed in in your in your story is that Scooter ends up at these places that you would think wouldn't be harmful. He ends up at a puddle, or he ends up at a dumpster with some food. But it turns out to be a real concern. Could you say a little bit what you were thinking and sure. doing that? that? That's very true, because you know, people don't realize how, how different little situations can be harmful to a dog. Like you mentioned, the puddle. Um, Scooter was wandering, wandering. He got thirsty. He drank from a puddle. He didn't realize that there was antifreeze in that puddle. It actually has a sweet taste, so it was good to him. But antifreeze is very poisonous. I mean, it could kill animals. And... Um, yeah, he, he's wandering around hungry. He goes behind a, you know, a fast food restaurant, and he sees a chicken bone by a dumpster. He starts eating it, and you know, they splinter, and they can get caught in their throat and choke them. Um, 
and along the way um, people help them and different situations help them and not to ruin the ending but but it always is a happy ending you know, a lot of bad things happen but it's always a happy ending in the end now we're speaking tonight with Howard Edelstein and Howard is the author of a book Scooter Strays and it's probably not a bad time for the children to to listen we'll have our story later for them but this question of, of scooter strays and how children learn to care for a dog affects our young people because it's children love animals and it's important that they know how to care for them now Howard in your book um, you must have had things that you wanted to teach children what would be some of the important lessons that you would want children to take from your book well I mean there's, there's a lot there you know to to have empathy for animals, to you know, kind of do onto an animal as you would want done. I mean, don't be cruel to an animal. It's like um, you mentioned that it's all you know. I, I created this website while working with the Washington Humane Society, and just last week, you probably heard on the news about a dog named Trooper that the Washington Humane Society is caring for, um, which tragically, you know, I assume children were using this dog in pit bull fighting. Um, I don't really know what age group is into pit bull fighting. And um, then they discarded this poor dog afterwards. And thankfully, somebody found him, got him to shelter. And um, actually, now he's at Friendship Animal Hospital, and hopefully he'll recover. But it's just, you know, treat, treat animals with respect. You know, don't, don't be cruel to them. Don't just toss them aside. I mean, they're, they're loving creatures that want to be a part of your family. They, they need somebody to care for them. And, you know, they're domestic animals. Dogs, cats, they're all domestic animals, and they need us to care for them. Now, Howard, one of the intriguing things in your in your book and and on the website is that your story is interactive, so the children can choose different endings. Exactly. Actually, through that the whole story, except for page one, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the whole story can change. So, um, at the end of each page, you you get two different options. So each time you go through the story, you can make different selections, and it could be a whole new story. So yeah, you can read it over and over, and the story changes, which which makes for great children's readings. I've been doing a lot of children's readings, and it's a lot of fun because you know everybody gets to participate, and then we go through it a couple of times, and they have a lot of fun. Plus, they start out with a couple of magic tricks. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. <laughs> now I remember years ago there were there was a series of books called Choose Your Own Story, Choose Your Own Ending, and so you could pick how your story evolved, and uh, and I like that that part about the scooter strays and. What are some of the choices that the children have? Um, well, there's a lot, um, like like you had mentioned, whether he eats from the dumpster, there's one where he's trying to run away from somebody, whether he goes through a construction site, you know, does he, he, he ends up running through a sewer to get away from somebody, does he, you know, get help while in the sewer, does he fall into a stream, um, some children are chasing him. Do they hurt him? Does somebody help him? There's a lot. There's usually like a, a good choice or a bad choice. You know, mm-hmm. does somebody help him or does somebody hurt him? Yeah. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot throughout the book. That's why. And what age mm-hmm. child did you have in mind when you wrote this book? Um, kind of about six to twelve, right mm-hmm. in that age mm-hmm. group. Yeah. yeah, age when children just love animals so much. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah. Oh, and just to mention, so I don't forget that all proceeds from the sale of the book do go to the Washington Humane Society. Yes, I know that's it's very noble that you do it that way, and what a oh, wonderful okay. service. And if 
people wanted to go and see Scooter Strays on the on the web, where would they go? What's the site? Um, well, the easy, it's on the Washington Humane Society's kids' website, but the easiest way to get there, if they did just go to www.scooterstrays.com. And from there, there's a button for online version, which mm-hmm. takes you to the scooter part of the Washington Humane Society kids page. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of other fun parts of their kids page, too, and educational. Uh-huh. And you developed this as part of their educational program, didn't you? Yes, yeah. I developed, you know, the entire kids site. But, I mean, it's been a few years, and we're actually redeveloping or redesigning the humane education section now because, um, you know, they just have new ideas. It's you know, it's been a few years. It's time to upgrade it. Uh-huh. Yeah. What feedback have you gotten from children? Um, everybody seems to like the book. You know, they, they seem to like the message. Um, usually where I'm doing the readings are places where, you know, children that like animals would be a lot of pet stores and groomers, that mm-hmm. kind of thing, at the shelter. Um, I, I loved it. I once went to an elementary school, and they actually had printed out pages from the book and colored them in. They had a whole collage on the wall about them, and they were really into the book. And um, Everybody seems very positive about it, and they seem to really care about it. And everybody's telling me about their dogs and other animals, so no, it's you, very positive. You say you went to a, a public school. Is it possible for people to invite you to their school to speak about this? Absolutely. I, I, I would love that. Sure. There's um, actually uh, on the Scooter Strays website, just to keep it easy, there's an upcoming events button, um, which currently I have this interview mentioned on. Yes, I saw that. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> and um, there's an email address right on there where you, where you can contact myself or somebody who's helping me market the book, and you know, we could schedule something. I'd be more than happy to come and you know, read to, um, to a group of children. Sure, that'd be lovely. That's great. Yeah, and, and if anybody was interested in autographed copies, I'd be more than happy to do that, too. And, and where can people get your book? Can they get it at, on Amazon, or do they get it online? Or? Yeah, they could get it on Amazon. Um, yeah, if you just you know, go to the website, and there's on the About Scooter page or on the home page, mm-hmm. it lists, you know, there's a link to where you can purchase it. Um, if you were to have me come to your school or wherever, then I'd be happy to um, sell copies cheaper there than you get online, uh-huh. <laughs> and, and then they can be autographed. Uh-huh. Yeah, which that's, is always a good time. That's great. And now I noticed that your book is, it makes mention of Scooter. And who was Scooter? Scooter was my beagle. Uh-huh. Yeah, he, he was a real sweet dog. He never, he never wandered away from home, but he, he was just such a sweetie, and we had lots of great times together, lots of adventures, and I learned a lot about compassion and love through my dog. And yeah, we had a lot of our own adventures, and so you know, he, was, he was the model for the book. Yeah. That's great. And, uh, <laughs> and tell us a little bit more about the illustrator. Um, Amanda Mokel, she has a website called myanimalart.com, and she's just a very talented artist. She, she does a lot of portraits, a lot of animal portraits. Um, and she, she actually, she used to live around here in Tacoma Park, but now she, she moved out to San Francisco. Um, but she does a lot of art. I mean, she's, she's painted garage doors. She does portraits of people. She, she does all sorts of art. And yeah, people should take a look at that, myanimalart.com. Uh-huh. And that'd be Amanda's website. She's, now, she's great. Howard, when you see children with dogs, and caring for their pets, what are the things that you see that children commonly um, don't understand, things that you wish that you could talk to them about? Well, I, I think the biggest thing that 
not just children, but a lot of adults don't understand yeah. too, is just the point of, um, you know, making sure that your dog or any companion animal really is spayed or neutered. Maybe you don't have to worry about your gerbils too much as long as it's not male and female together. Um, but that they are spayed or neutered and that you go to either rescue groups or a shelter when you're looking to adopt an animal. Because what people don't realize is that there just aren't enough good homes for all the animals. I mean, sadly, millions of animals are euthanized every year because we just can't find enough good homes. And it, it, it's just wrong to purchase a st uh, an animal from you know, a breeder or a pet store where they keep on breeding them. And pet stores, they often get their animals from puppy mills where there are terrible hard conditions for these animals. And even if you think that you know, you're getting it from a breeder and they're going to find good homes for all their animals. What you're really doing is taking away homes from animals at the shelter that, you know, they're here and they're in need of animals. I mean, I'm sorry, in need of yeah. homes. Yes, they are. I'm getting worked up about it. <laughs> <laughs> it really, it, it's just so, it's just so yeah. tragic. Yeah. yeah, so, I mean, that's, that's the important thing that they should realize. You know, I, I mean, it's great when children love their animals. And, um, you know, I wouldn't say anything to them, oh, you should have gone to the shelter. But, you know, parents should realize that, That's that right. you really should. It, or rescue groups. I mean, any kind of animal you, you're looking for, you know, if you have a specific type, you know, if you don't want a mutt, which makes great animal, you know, a great pet. Um, if you'd rather a certain breed, there's a rescue group form. And the shelters get, you know, a lot of purebred animals in. So there's no problem finding whatever kind of animal you'd like. Yeah. Oh, it's such a good point and good for parents to remember because there are all of those animals at the shelters that just would love a good home. Oh, absolutely. And and also spaying and neutering is, is better for the animal's health. I mean, a lot of people don't realize that there are certain cancers that are a lot more prevalent in animals that aren't spayed or neutered, and it calms them down some, you know, so that's good too. We've been speaking with Howard Edelstein. Howard is an educator, uh, volunteers at the Humane Society, has written a wonderful book for children on accepting responsibility for your pet called Scooter Strays, and you can find that on the website. If you Google Scooter Strays, uh, it will take you to ScooterStrays.com, and you'll be able to see the story and, and see how delightfully interactive it is and uh, to find out where you could find the book or also how you could get Howard to come to your school and talk to the children there. That'd be great. Well, thank you, Howard, so much. Thank you so much. For being our guest. That was my pleasure. Oh, good. Mine too. Thank you. Now it's at that time of our show where we're going to turn to our uh, storytelling with Kalanje Lushegun and uh, want to invite you to get your children near. We've got a lovely story tonight, a Native American story called The Woman Who Married a Frog. The Woman Who Married a Frog There was once a young woman who was very proud. She was a daughter of the town chief, and her family was very respected. Many of the young men wanted to marry her, but she thought none of them were good enough for her. One day, she was walking with her sister beside the big lake near their village. There were many frogs in that lake. A large number of them were sitting on a mud bank in the middle of the lake, and she began to make fun of them. How ugly these frogs are, she said. Then she bent over and picked up one which was sitting on the muddy shore and looking up at her. You are so ugly, she said to the frog. Even another frog would not want to marry you. Then she threw the frog back into the lake. That night when she stepped outside her lodge to walk while the others were sleeping, she was surprised to see a young man standing there. His clothing was decorated with green beads, and he seemed very handsome. I have come to marry you, 
the young man said. Come with me to my father's house. The young woman agreed. She thought she had never seen such a handsome man before and wanted to be his wife. We must climb the hill to go to my father's house, the young man said, and he pointed toward the lake. They began to walk down toward the water, but it seemed to the young woman that they were climbing a hill. When they reached the water, they did not stop, but they went under. The next day, her family noticed that she was missing. They searched for her everywhere, and when they found her tracks leading to the water, they decided she had drowned. They beat the drums for the death feast. People cut their hair and blackened their faces and mourned. One day, though, a man walked down by the lake. When he looked out toward the middle, he saw on the mud bank many frogs sitting there. There, in the midst of the frogs, was the chief's missing daughter. He began to wade in toward them, but they leaped into the water, taking the young woman with them. The man went as quickly as he could to the chief's house. I have seen your daughter, he said. She has been taken by the frogs. I tried to reach her, but the frog people took her with them under the water. The young woman's father and mother went down to the lake. There they saw their daughter sitting in the mud bank, surrounded by the frog people. As before, when they tried to reach her, the frogs dove in and carried her under the lake with them. Then the chief's other daughter spoke. My sister insulted the frogs, she said. That is why they have taken her. The chief saw then what he must do. He made offerings to the frog people, asking them to forgive his daughter. They placed dishes of food on the surface of the water. The dishes floated out and then sank. But the frogs would not give up the young woman. They placed robes of fine skins on the bank. The young woman and the frog people came to the bank and took these robes. But when the chief came close, the frog people drew her back into the lake. The frogs would not give her up. At last the chief made a plan. He gathered together all of the people of the village. We will dig a trench, he said. We will drain away the water of the lake and rescue my daughter. The people worked for a long time, and the water began to drain away. The frog people tried to fill the trench with mud, but they could not stop the water from flowing out. The frogs tried to drive the people away, but the people only picked the frogs up and dropped them back into the water. They were careful not to hurt any of the frogs, but they did not stop the digging the trench. The water continued to flow out, and the homes of the frog people were being destroyed. At last, the chief of the frogs decided it was his son who had married the young woman. We are not strong enough to fight these humans, he said. We must give my new daughter back to her people. So they brought the young woman to the trench. Her father and mother saw her, and they pulled her out. She was covered with mud and smelled like a frog. One frog leapt out of the water after her. It was a frog who had been her husband. But the people carefully picked him up and dropped him back into the lake. They took the young woman home for a long time. She could only speak as frogs does. Honk, honk, honk. Finally, she learned to speak like a human again. The frogs know our language, she told the people. We must not talk badly about them. From that day on, her people showed the greatest respect to the frogs. They learned the songs that the woman brought from the frog people, and they used the frog as an emblem. They had learned a great lesson. 
They never forgot what happened to the young woman who was so proud. To this day, some people in that village still say, when they hear the frogs singing the lake, the frogs are telling their children this story, too. Ah, a wonderful story by Kalanje Alushagun. Just wonderful to end our program each week, each month, with that telling of a story by Kalanji, a wonderful gift that he gives to us. Now, we're going to be back in September on the third Monday of the month. I invite you to tune in, and we're going to have a, a guest on a, who's written a book called Wild Boys, and it's nurturing the inner life of boys, and we're going to be talking about boys and the challenges they face, and particularly the challenges that they face in school, with school coming back. I'm sure that this is something that's on the minds of, of parents the return to school and how will our children do. So I uh, invite you to, to tune in on the third Monday of the month for that show in September. And we're going to be turning now to uh, the next program. Rusty Hassan has come in. He's going to get ready for Monday Night Jazz. And just to appreciate um, the thoughtful the thought that goes into all the music that's brought to you here on WPFW. You know, um, this weekend I was driving down um, from New York and uh, turned on the radio, and uh, I always look to see if I'm in New York in the afternoon because I know that on Saturday afternoons and Sunday afternoon at 2 o'clock on uh, WNYC up there that Jonathan Schwartz has a show. And I grew up listening to Jonathan Schwartz. He's just one of my, my favorite um, programmers, and uh, I just love his show. And so there he was. I was driving down with my daughter, and she got to listen to more of WNYC in New York than she wanted to. She'd much rather have us tune in on a station that played more rap and hip-hop. But we got to listen to his uh, the jazz selections that he played and the selections that he played from American popular music, and it just was a delight to hear his voice. And it reminded me of how much I appreciate those dish jockeys, those those hosts of radio shows that put so much thought into the music that they bring and how thankful we are for such for their care and their um, their presentation so i think that's a good reminder for you to stay tuned and listen to rusty hassan because he'll be doing just that uh right after eight o'clock and now i just want to say our thank yous i want to thank our engineers i want to thank jasmine blackman for her help tonight and for t sturdivan for the work he always does I want to thank our guests, uh, Ron Schneebaum, Dr. Schneebaum from New England, and Howard Edelstein uh, for his work at the Humane Society. And, of course, I want to thank Kalanji Lushigun for the fine story that he told tonight. And to the third graders, my third graders at the Waldorf School, um, boys and girls, I've been thinking about you, looking forward to seeing you again, and I hope the stars have been watching over you. Good night. Your children are not your children, they are 